Welcome to the Podglomerate. Hello and welcome to Plus 7 Intelligence, the show about how games impact people. My name is Chess. This episode continues our series talking about games and education. This episode is with a guest who is making his second appearance on the show. I first spoke with him way back in episode two of season one. And to this day, his episode is one that people point to as being really surprising and inspiring. His name is Paul Darvasi, and we talked about how games can promote empathy, not just with characters within the game, but with other human beings in the real world. That episode isn't a prerequisite to this one exactly, but we touch on similar themes, and it is a really good discussion, so I recommend checking it out. So I just had to catch up with what he has been doing since then and have him return to the show. He is doing really interesting things where he is simultaneously using games to teach, but also as a way to gather information about how young people interact with the world and with ideas. We also ended up talking about the educational potential of Dungeons and Dragons, including talking a bit about Game to Grow, which, by the way, if you remember from last episode, they are running a Kickstarter project called Critical Core that you all should check out. To find out more about that, check out the beginning of the previous episode or check out the episode devoted to Game to Grow in the Games and Mental Health series. The links will be in the show notes. But for now, welcome Paul Darvasi back to the show. All right, returning to the show today is Paul Darvasi. He is an educator and getting pretty close to finishing his doctorate in his research on games and education. So welcome to the show, Paul. Great uh, to be here. Great to be back. Thank you for having me. You had actually mentioned a project on Grand Theft Auto. I think it was at the end of our last recording, which was about a year and a half ago, this project on Grand Theft Auto V in a classroom setting, that is a part of your doctoral thesis, correct? That's right, exactly. Yeah, so can you talk about that? I hear you're getting pretty close to completing that. I am. Uh, I will hopefully be defending my dissertation in the spring, and it's uh, it's been quite an adventure. I've, I've actually really enjoyed it and, and uh, have learned a lot from the process. So the, the nature of the study is that I'm, I'm very interested um, in meeting uh, youth and adolescents where they are. And I, I teach at an all-boys school. Um, and it, it, it's come to my attention that a lot of these boys are playing potentially problematic games. And what I mean problematic is how these games represent uh, gender, or race, or, or political ideology. And, and my fear has been that there's no apparatus for the critical consumption of these issues, um, when you know young men are going off into their basements and playing games, and 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 of course they're intelligent and they think about it, and they're part of larger communities that have these discussions. But I also feel that there's a certain responsibility that schools have in creating digital literacy and media literacy programs that are relevant to uh, the types of uh, media environments that these adolescents inhabit. So. 
what I did is I chose Grand Theft Auto V, not because I have any particular love for the game. It's, it's not the style of game I normally like to play, but because uh, it's been called the cornerstone of youth culture. I mean, it's, it's now sold over 100 uh, million copies. It's been one of the most lucrative games ever made. It's, it, technologically, it's a masterpiece. I mean, what they've pulled off with this game is, is kind of mind-boggling. Um, and it's a place that uh, is very familiar to many adolescent boys. Every you know, classroom I walk into and I informally survey the group of boys and ask how many of you play Grand Theft Auto V, and this is five years after the game's release, half the hands uh, will still go up. What we really don't know is how young males are processing these problematic images uh, and representations from these very complex texts. And GTA V is a very complex text because it's not just outright violent or sexist or racist. There's a whole series of, of ironies at play where in many ways it's making fun uh, or ridiculing many aspects of how race and gender are being consumed in the media while perpetuating perpetuating these stereotypes in an ironic way, right? But the irony falls short in some places, in, in my belief. So the purpose of my study then, using a, a variety of ways to, to gather data, is to really start uh, a process of understanding, one, what male adolescents think and feel when they're in those environments, but two, creating a model for incorporating these games, uh, regardless of their problematic nature, in school curricula in a meaningful way in order to address the issue of critical consumption and, and how these boys uh, don't have um, uh, a critical context by which to consume this media. Hmm. Wow, that's really fascinating, you know, because, I mean, if there's any game that has gotten more, like, ire and and had so many people point out the problems with it, it's Grand Theft Auto. And like you said, it's an absolutely massive game, but it's really interesting that you're taking it and use it to at least ascertain, you know, some information about how it is affecting people and how it could be used as kind of an educational backdrop. Absolutely. It's also fertile territory in that um, the demographic that I work with uh, and, and the, the participants in my study don't actually have a lot of exposure to other races, particularly, you know, African-American youth. They're fairly sort of isolated in a predominantly white culture. So the way that they access race is largely through media and, and, and their conversations about race are not just uh, from media, but also shaped by media. So what's really fascinating about the study is that when, you know, white male youth uh, exist and operate socially, largely in isolation from, from the African-American culture that has, you know, sort of a, a significant representation in the game, it's one of the few genuine launch pads to have these types of conversations. So, so it's really meaningful to meet them where they're shaping their perceptions of race and their relationship to race and start unpacking their views based on that. Yeah, and, and that's really valuable, I think, because video games are a medium that most people don't understand and there's not a lot of context around it. Like, you know, in comedy movie or comedians and they might make comments about race and there's like a context for 
you know, what that means and what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. You know, obviously there's lots of fights over that, but at least there's some measure of context. Whereas in video games, there's not really such thing as a comedy game. I mean, I guess they exist, but there's not that same context of like, well, is this game being serious? Is this game being a parody? You know, what is going on in this game? This is especially important to think about with respect to the idea that we're trying to push games forward and trying to have games treat things seriously, trying to find a context for how games are treating things seriously, how games can be parody. I think they're trying to find those lines or at least some, I don't know, some some guidelines or some language to use around it could be really valuable. Uh, that's absolutely it. Uh, particularly the language around it to to have what you know what I call the critical apparatus to build the critical apparatus for them to think critically about not just this game but the the tools that that for example um, that we accessed in order to think about GTA Five in what I would consider a more meaningful way. Those tools stay with these young men for the rest of their lives, and they start seeing wow, um, you know the way that women are being represented in GTA Five is actually terrible without redemption. I, I would argue that GTA 5 does a pretty good job of creating sufficient irony around issues of race that you could, you know, you could see it as a, as a valuable social critique on one level. But with the representation of women, uh, I, I don't see it. There's not enough parody or irony to really undermine it, to, to give the cues to the to the audience to really think, wow, the way women are being represented is really negative. And, and as a result of that, I think that, that context is crucial. And, and, and pretty much in the use, any use of a commercial video game in an education setting, which is something I'm really interested in, um, the success of that project largely uh, depends on how you contextualize the experience, what types of tools, what types of words, and what types of ideas you put into play, but also creating opportunities for the various constituents to dialogue with each other and think about what they're experiencing as they're experiencing it. In, in the kind of digital realm. Yeah, and this, I think, kind of dovetails with what we talked about last time a lot was your paper on games and how they can promote empathy. Are there other recent projects that you think have done a great job or other work you've done in regards to games and empathy that, that can show how games can be used as a tool for instilling or teaching empathy? Sure. I am currently working developing curriculum um, with the iThrive Foundation uh, for a game called What Remains of Edith Finch, which is a first-person exploration game, sometimes called a walking simulator, uh, about uh, a young lady uh, who is coming to terms with her family's past by exploring the abandoned house that that holds all of these sort of family secrets. Um, and and again, one of the focuses that, that we're using when creating curriculum around this game and others like it is, is to really emphasize uh, what we call social and emotional learning. And empathy is a big part of the social emotional learning palette. And, and this is really um, a push that I think education really has to is taking quite seriously but we have to see more emphasis on um, focusing on a student's well-being their sense of self-confidence their sense of resilience because studies have found that when somebody has that sense of well-being where they where they they feel 
um, in some ways that their social emotional um, interactions have been well nourished and are in a healthy place, learning uh, at the cognitive level improves dramatically. Um, so currently our school system largely neglects um, the, the social emotional learning and therefore it, it's like putting the cart ahead of the horse where, where we're expecting students to perform well in more traditional educational tasks that are divorced of the social emotional learning platform and and of course that's causing you know sort of many students not to succeed in those environments which they might if they had uh they were better catered to in terms of their social and emotional development so empathy is a big part of this and and i've used you know games like either finch also to have them think about others and think about other people's perspectives and um and and video games in general are very good at that it, it, it really does a lot they they allow you to access you know different lives and different perspectives and different ways of being in a very engaged and meaningful way. And, and if properly contextualized, many of these things um, can be used in order to provoke empathetic uh, responses and, and uh, uh, in, in the audience. That's definitely something that I think, I think it's become more important to video game developers that they're thinking long and hard about how to get players to empathize with characters because in a video game, sometimes that can be complex because players have a tendency to impose their own ideas upon their character that they're playing, but that might not match with what the creators of the game were trying to, to characterize that character as. I talked about this a little bit with one of my last guests who was making a, talking about the difference between film and video games, how in film, the creators have pretty much complete control over how a character is represented. Whereas in a game players, they take actions, they make choices. So they, uh, so they basically define who their character is, but that can sometimes mismatch with what the creators of the game have. Absolutely. The, you give up a lot of control. I mean, also depends on the game. Some games that, you know, they're fairly railroaded in terms of their stories and their characters, or others, you know, offer a great deal of choice and freedom. But in general, uh, the, the story of video games and designing video games has been the story of, of, of giving up uh, a certain degree of narrative control to the, to the user, to the player. Um, and, and simultaneously, that, that means that your outcomes aren't guaranteed. You may create a very emotional game that has you know a, a great deal of of opportunity to produce empathy but if the player is really just focused on the win condition at the expense of the story or or detaining or reflecting on what's going on they basically access the the ludic system underneath the story to try to get to to you know to to the fine to the end as quickly and efficiently as possible so whatever the 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 the, the good intentions of the designer might be these could be ignored overlooked or challenged by by um, the user and and that's that's okay to challenge the ideas of the game the rhetoric of the game the values of the game that's critical thinking and that's a good thing but if an instructor wants to use a game in order to uh, to promote empathy or to think empathetically about the subject again I return to context it's really important to make players deliberately mindful of certain issues that may, 
arise uh, within the game through creating ancillary material like readings and videos. Um, I've also found that priming, uh, I, I read about some research where if you actually have students read about empathy or watch a short video about empathy before actually playing a game with the purposes of promoting empathy, they're much more likely to express a sense of empathy during gameplay. Yeah, this is all making me think of a game that came out recently, um, Detroit Become Human. I don't know if you've had a chance to play it, but it has a very, it's pretty much entirely about empathy because it's about androids possibly becoming sentient and how humans are going to react to them, react to their plight. And I, I actually haven't played it myself, but I've seen some playthroughs and it was very interesting to see how the people playing the game would become very attached to characters. And if something terrible happened to their character, they might have like a visceral reaction, like, oh my God, my character died. I'm going to immediately pause it. I'm not even going to see what happens. I'm going to immediately pause it and go back and, and reload mm -hmm. my save. It's very interesting to see that in real time of seeing how people can, through games, become very empathetic towards, towards characters that aren't even real. Yeah, it's amazing. And that's a game I have been dying to play. Um, coincidentally, my uh, PS4, my first PS4 arrived last night. And uh, the first thing I did was download Red Dead Redemption 2 because it came out yesterday. <laughs> and I was very curious to see what all the, the buzz was about. So I played for a few hours. But Detroit is uh, even higher on my list than Red Dead. I just felt it was it was fun to buy the game on the day that it was released, which is something I rarely do. Um, but uh, And I feel that... that the the promise of a game like Detroit, I think, is 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 empathy, but it's also looking at a really fascinating and an imminent issue. Is as you know, artificial intelligence and cybernetics, all of this stuff is inevitably going to improve to the level that it's going to be you know it's going to be very difficult to tell whether you're dealing with a real human being or a bot when you're on the phone, and 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 the extent that artificial intelligence can replicate human emotions and provoke human emotions. So these are issues that seemed like sci-fi not too long ago but I think in our lifetime, we're going to see them become legitimate uh, bones of contention socially. So I think it's a wonderful game, and I can't wait to play. I've also seen some playthroughs, and I'm, I'm interested in, in digging a little deeper into that game when I have some more time. But yeah, I, I think that you can have visceral responses to film. You can have visceral responses to books, and they all produce empathy in some way. And, and positive pro-social behavior can be uh, in some ways uh, stimulated by a variety of media. But as I said, games are, are very unique in their ability to bestow perspective, to immerse you in worlds, to create agency, which is you know something that's very important in the game world, that more deeply psychologically and emotionally invests you in the process, or at least allegedly. Um, there's still a lot of research to be done in that area. Yeah, and I saw that you recently spoke on a panel about games and empathy. Can you talk about that and, and what was discussed there? Yeah, it was it was a great panel. At, um, we were in the Michigan State University for the Meaningful Play Conference. The panelists all had some experience relating empathy to games, everything from historical empathy to, to uh, you know, challenging what is possible with empathy. And, and what I find, what I find really interesting is there, it's a very difficult thing to prove empirically. 
Recently, a study came out led by Richie Davidson at the University of Wisconsin in Madison that is one of the first studies to actually map neurological changes in players who used a game that was deliberately designed to promote empathy and the types of neurological connections that were being made were consistent with patterns of empathy. And we now have some hard science to show that yes, you can stimulate empathy with a game. The question is, I mean, does that lead to action in the long run, which is you know, not necessarily the purpose of empathy, but, but it's an important byproduct of it, and whether this is sustained, right? And, and the deeper question also is, you know, I, I had a conversation with somebody on a radio program a few years ago where, where they basically were saying that your capacity for empathy, your, 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 your sort of reserve of empathetic potential... Uh, is is basically entirely set by the time you're a toddler, you know, three or four years old. And therefore, the, the possibility of increasing or decreasing that capacity is very minimal from there on in. It's almost like you have this set, uh, and I don't know if this is true, I don't know what stud- studies back it up. And at that point, if you're if 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 what this person has any validity and you have a set capacity for empathy that's been sort of locked in largely locked in at a fairly early age then any work you do from there on in is more directing empathy towards a certain subject matter which is essentially creating awareness to direct your reserve to feel for the other at a particular you know whether it's a character in a in a Rwandan civil war story or towards a a homeless child or something along those lines but if you don't have a large capacity for empathy, it's not necessarily that the game would have the potential of increasing that, only directing it. Now, that's very much hearsay. And, and I, I tend to think that that capacity is a little bit more elastic through your life, that you can, you can work to develop your emotions throughout your life. I don't think that they're set. But again, that's largely hearsay. But uh, Dr. Davidson's work showing that, that these neurological connections are being made when playing an empathetic game is certainly promising to illustrate the fact that, that maybe our capacity for empathy can be widened uh, even after a certain age. I guess that, that's kind of interesting to me that, you know, it's about directing empathy. I mean, I guess it's this isn't so much about games, but about people. But, you know, I've always thought that as people become aware and, you know, are able to see what other people are going through, that will kind of open up the the possibility of empathy, of, you know, changing your mind, of wanting to reach out. I'm definitely interested in wondering, you know, how much the games can play a part in that. And, you know, kind of like how we've discussed before, the idea of how games put you in the driver's seat and allow you to make those choices, I think, can be very potent for for expanding and experimenting with empathy. Mm-hmm. And and of course, I mean, and, and that's just one area in which games can help surface uh, service rather, you know, a, a very important realm of social emotional learning. But the capacity and potential for games in the classroom are virtually limitless, um, and I and I think that uh, one great uh, unit that I that I designed around a game that I think is worth sharing is um, there's a a game called the Path, which essentially uh, has five different sisters, each one in some ways a vague representation of the Little Red Riding Hood motif or or trope 
where uh, these adolescent and early, you know, and, and a sisters in her early 20s, uh, these, these pre-adolescent, adolescent girls and the sisters in their early 20s, each undertake uh, a journey to grandma's house. And when they, they go off the, the beaten path, they encounter objects and items in the forest that in some ways trigger memories about difficult situations they've been in as women growing up and, and coming of age. So what, what we did or how I used the game was we looked at um, all various different manifestations of the Little Red Riding Hood story, starting from its origins in orality to uh, its first publications in France, the Grimm Brothers, and then a series of ads and stories and short films that have all been made using the Little Red Riding Hood motif. And uh, we had students think about how the different periods and the different mediums through which this one story was being presented reshaped the story, but still preserving some essential characteristics throughout, but how they reshape the story according to the values of the time and the affordances and limitations of the medium. Um, and the final coup was to, to play uh, the, the path, which again leverages the, the Little Red Riding Hood motif. And then I had them read a few essays on feminism that were directed to teach high school students about feminism and representations of women and representations of men and, and had them uh, both produce creative responses and a formal written response where they created an analysis using any two depictions of Little Red Riding Hood that must include the game to think about how the women were being represented, whether they were negative portrayals, stereotypical portrayals, or portrayals that really lent themselves to a more enlightened view on the possibilities for, for womanhood. So it was, again, all about creating the context around this game. And the game added a very necessary and powerful uh, sort of capstone to the whole to the whole unit. And it's not just about learning how to apply a critical position to a game. Therefore, you know, you when when you study humanities in university, you start thinking about how a Marxist perspective or a feminist perspective or a colonial perspective is applied to a text or a reading or a way of thinking in order to to establish a position from which uh, you you analyze something. So they're getting a taste of that in high school, which is which is really important. But also there's a lot of negativity surrounding feminism with bo adolescent boys. And a lot of it has to do with the circulation of YouTube videos of women being very aggressive and negative and, and that becomes to to many boys the defining view of what feminism is these sort of you know annoying women that are screaming and yelling for equality and, and it's a very unsophisticated idea of what it is so it's important to create a counter narrative to show no this is actually important thinking that is not just about equality that that actually spreads into into many other areas and to have a degree of empathy for what it's like to be a woman and the challenges that you have as a woman that may not be apparent to boys, especially adolescent boys, uh, as they're sort of trying to, to figure it all out. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating. Probably the most outstanding glaring failing of video games as an industry, as a community, has been representation of women and how they're literally treated in the community. It's interesting to me that you know, and talking about empathy and, and so on in this way, that it's not just a gesture to include women in these things and to include a female perspective in these things. It 
does actually promote empathy and could potentially really make a difference in, in how people see the world. Absolutely. And I think it's really important to address, you know, sort of the white male adolescent demographic, right? Because they are often can be uh, the perpetuators of some of this negativity. And, and it's important to give them a more educated, wider, critical lens from them to, to approach life from, as opposed to a much more narrow, angry, limited view on, on what the possibilities are for inclusivity. And, and, and not just you know women in the games industry, which is a huge issue, and women's in, women in the tech industry, which is a huge issue, but the roles and representations of women and how they have been traditionally represented and, and to better understand how that is affecting perceptions of womanhood and perceptions of femininity and, and to really explore that and enlist them. And, and it's, it's really important to target this demographic because, as I said, uh, they are the ones that that are still remain influential and still, to some degree, you know, hold the power and the privilege that that is in a position to actually make positive change if if they see things in in a certain way. I also saw that you were doing some writing about using role playing games like Dungeons and Dragons for education. I saw you wrote multiple articles about it, so there's probably a lot to go into there. It's been fascinating. So I, if I trace my love of games and video games, I mean, it goes back to in television and Dungeons and Dragons when I was in middle school. And, and then, it, you know, Dungeons and Dragons in my personal life occupied one or two years of my life. I didn't, I didn't continue with it much beyond being 13 or 14 years old. But um, recently it's had a massive resurgence and it, and it came to my attention that some educators and, and therapists were doing amazing things with role-playing games and games. I know that you had somebody in, I think it was your first episode, a therapist who uses games with with the adolescents that he treats. And, and, and Dungeons and & Dragons is a game and other role-playing games have been used more and more widely because of many social emotional advantages and benefits that are being seen from using these games. So I was able to interview educators and professors and, and, various, and various stakeholders in this world to put together a six-part series on how Dungeons & Dragons has influenced or is having a positive effect in various you know, education sectors, including reading and writing, where many kids who are reluctant readers and writers start playing the game, which requires a lot of research and reading and backstories. And, and they become motivated to, to not just read, you know, the rules and, and the various, you know, sort of community posts around the game, but also they, they go to Lord of the Rings or other fantasy novels as source of, of inspiration as they become more immersed in the in this fantasy world. So that there's a lot of good evidence to show that D&D can be a great way to spur reading and writing with reluctant readers, which I think is really exciting. Also, lots of amazing work being done in the social and emotional realm where kids that are quiet or shy or, or not socially confident when in the game and when assuming a role, they become uh, much more expressive, outgoing, and empowered within the fantasy, you know, magic circle of the game. And what uh, has been informally reported is that that form or that field in which to express themselves and to allow them to experiment with their personalities in a safe and welcoming environment 
grows their confidence to have more positive social interactions outside of the game. And that is, that's huge. And I've actually seen it in my own school where we run a small D and D club and, and kids that I would, you know, characterize as shy and reluctant, just come to life at the table. And I can see them displaying more social confidence in the hallways and with their peers and, and gaining some degree of social capital with the, the other individuals involved in the game. And then moving beyond that, um, there's there's some teachers that have done amazing things using uh, D&D for, you know, multiple, uh, multidisciplinary purposes, where they can tie it to science and tie it to math and, and all of these other subjects, which you wouldn't traditionally associate with a role-playing game like Dungeons and Dragons. And then finally, at its, at its kind of more outward manifestation, many teachers have structured their classes as games where, where grades are replaced by experience points, where you can level up or get power-ups. And, and many of these conventions have been borrowed from the D&D repertoire in order to graph them onto traditional school systems and actually make school more fun at the at the outward level so so you can look at D as the source of all of these great positive initiatives in almost every realm affecting school and i think it, it's a great model i'm, I'm not sort of suggesting that D is the savior of education but a great model uh, as to how a powerful game can have incredibly positive results when used in the right way. Yeah, I think that D&D, and it kind of has this amazing story of being something that was totally, like, literally demonized. And <laughs> now that it's, now that it's had its resurgence, it's like all these educators, therapists, counselors, all these people have discovered that it has all of these amazing things in it, in some ways it's like exactly what like the educational, the typical educational system is lacking and that it provides so many things that are just missing in, in kind of everything else in, in kind of modern life, you know, being able to meet face to face with people, being able to explore, you know, explore narratives, explore being able to tell a story in improvisational way it's it's really amazing how it's gone from basically swung from one side to the other now i don't know if it's really met mainstream acceptance yet but it's gotten so much better and gotten so much better understood even in pop culture a hundred percent i think there's a great study in this right and again i i think it's a question of context where you have a spectatorial society where most people are very used to sitting down and consuming entertainment from a very passive position and 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 I would argue that on some level the this this very dynamic immersive role playing game posed a challenge to the values and ideals of a spectatorial society. Wait a minute, we're, we're, we're supposed to consume things by being nice, obedient little audience members who sit down and absorb this. And that, that, that very powerful or potent elixir of role play and immersion and and storytelling. I mean, these go to the to the fundamentals of ritual in in our society. I think released an enormous amount of power that that really concerned people. Whenever whenever there are these releases of cultural power, I think people get into a panic because it starts challenging the status quo. And then you know, one one thing that I write is almost see it almost seems like D and D spread it spread the seeds for its own resurgence because that whole generation of, of nerdy kids who were kind of hiding in their basements, playing with their friends or in their dorm rooms, they became 
many of society's leaders and, and, and cultural influencers. I mean, so many very famous and, and influential writers and filmmakers have D&D in their past. And, and then all of a sudden, they shaped a society that was immersive and interactive and friendly to role play. And, and now D&D is home. It's in a social context that makes so much sense for this particular game because it, it retains that participatory element that defines so much of modern culture, including video games. It retains uh, the, the, the ability to role play in a world where increasingly we're, we're, we're balancing multiple identities with online presence and social media presence and our face-to-face -face presence. So all of this kind of speaks to, to our age. And on top of that, it's an antidote to screen time. You get all the benefits of online uh, immersion and interactivity, but you do it in a way where people gather socially and have a much more organic face-to-face -face storytelling experience. Um, and all of this in terms of the market has been um, amplified by a huge following that shows like Critical Role have on, on, on streaming channels like Twitch, where these LA voice actors play D&D games that are being viewed and listened to by people all over the world, and therefore spurring further interest in the game. So it's, it's gained a huge level of legitimacy and popularity. And I wouldn't be surprised, I haven't looked at the numbers, that if it's the sales now have far outpaced sales that even at its height in the, in the kind of late 80s. Yeah, and the other thing that's interesting too is D&D kind of has, like you mentioned, it seeds in, you know, in the population, but even more than that, it, it influenced, it's starting with computer role-playing games and, you know, MMORPGs, and now every type of game has taken inspiration from at least the mechanics of role-playing games, you know, how there's experience points and how you level up even in first person shooters when you know when i was growing up that would be completely ridiculous um, <laughs> right and uh now it's pretty far removed but there's kind of a direct line between you know today's gamification of pretty much everything you know getting uh reward points or apps that give you experience points productivity apps that you know have you level up and and so on you know all of that traces through the line back to dungeons and dragons and those specific mechanics aren't really the most important part of Dungeons and Dragons, but the idea that it was kind of lying in wait and people who played Dungeons and Dragons were afraid to even admit that they were playing. Right. But now yeah. it's kind of, and now it's affected everything. Right. Everywhere you look, there's a little bit of it in, in everything you do. And I think a lot of that is why now people are really buying into why it's so valuable. Yeah, it's funny. I, I immediately thought about, you know, how many major religions started as subversive cults that you wouldn't want to admit to be part of. And then all of a sudden they just explode into the into the norm. Right. Uh, and and yeah, absolutely. And I think even uh, you're you're dead on about those mechanics originating in Dungeons and Dragons and even things like loot boxes and character classes and things that that have become, as you say, absolute standards in so many video games are all stem from the repertoire of mechanics that were innovated and pioneered by by Dungeons and Dragons. So um, I think that there the the current you know sort of uh, if you believe uh, Dr. Eric Zimmerman's view that we are living in the ludic century that that all of our you know increasingly our 
our, our social interactions, our, our institutions, our corporate transactions are going to become more game-like, that games are a natural expression of the computer, much like film was a natural expression of, of a factory, that, that games are going to become the paradigm of the 21st century. And therefore, considering the influence of a game like Dungeons & Dragons in perpetuating game-like thinking and game-like systems, we can only assume that its uh, growing, spreading influence is only going to widen over time. I can definitely see that playing out that, you know, with gamification being applied pretty much everywhere, I can definitely see that being the case. And, you know, in talking about our series on games and social change about how games can be, you know, one of the tools that can be used to change the world and can be part of the next push for dealing with the world's greatest problems. I can definitely see how games are going to become more and more important to, to understand. Absolutely. And, and, and require both, as I say, the, the the presence of games in education is manifold in the sense that you have a one on one hand a game should be studied the same way we study novels and and plays and poetry because it is a valid textual form a dominant textual form in the 21st century and we would be remiss not to allow for that to be criticized in any significant way or to provide the tools to critique games in a significant way um, but then there's the, the level of using games uh, not just as a source of, of critique, but as an instructional tool, as an instructional environment where you can teach by inviting students into a game world and having them interact or do or play. And, and that, that the nice thing about that is it also corresponds to experiential learning in that games are much more or provide the opportunity for learning by doing than, of course, the abstract learning that goes on with textbooks, for example, which still has a place in education. No, nothing is to the omission or exclusion of anything else, but the, I think that games need to be included as part of the ecology. And finally, um, the the idea that we've been discussing, where um, the 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 types of interactions that have been staged in the digital game world, uh, you know, whether quest based uh, missions or, or or various mechanics that 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 can then be externalized and grafted onto the education system to create much more dynamic, participatory, and engaging um, uh, interactions in education uh, that can be inspired from the game world so that games have, have uh, a possibility of influencing and should enter uh, uh, the educational sphere in a number of different corresponding ways. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely very excited to to see how games are continuing to be innovated on and applied to different areas. I'm, I'm a firm believer in their potential, but, you know, there's, you know, like we kind of talked about at the beginning, there's a lot of problematic elements of games that might have to be folded into that and dealt with there. But um, I'm definitely really excited to see how those things evolve. Uh, likewise. Absolutely. And I think those problematic elements are also teachable moments, as I'm showing with, you know, I'm trying to show with my GTA 5 study that we, we can't, we're, it, it's socially irresponsible to ignore them. Games in and of themselves are part of the repertoire of social issues that we're addressing, and, and, and they have to be studied and considered as such, though. They, 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 they are an important cornerstone of the direction that education is going. 
Yeah, and that actually kind of reminds me of, I've played Dungeons and Dragons very sporadically, but uh, the last time that I played, someone made the comment about the world of Dungeons and Dragons, you know, the backstory, at least. They said that all of the races in Dungeons and Dragons are racist against each other. Right, right. (laughs) Which I don't, I don't know very much about it at all, but it's interesting to me that that is kind of the backdrop and that is something that is kind of instilled, you know, even from character creation in the game, that like tension and how that can relate to, you know, the stories that go on in the game and how people start to relate to each other in the game. It's it's actually built in. Uh, absolutely. So what's interesting about that is that that there are probably as many ways to play Dungeons and Dragons as people playing them. There's like house rules and improvisations and some dungeon masters don't, you know, they, they sort of leave their, the decision-making to themselves and don't consult the official charts where there's more orthodox manifestations of gameplay where people follow all the rules. So there's so many different ways that the game can be played. It's a very flexible tool. And, and ultimately what happens is even if the, you know, the backstory or the lore of the origins of these races, and I, I, I don't, I'm not aware of, of, of the specifics of that do create tension between the races. I have to say that when I've seen the game played, you know, repeatedly, that that doesn't actually manifest itself, that there, there's a lot of, you know, that, that usually parties of five or six players are an assortment of different races that are clearly working together and getting along. So again, it's how you decide to shape that. I mean, if there's, there could be an opportunity to explore racism through the tensions that exist between the different fantasy races in the game. And what's really fascinating about that is that, and this is something that I write a little bit about in in the articles, is that just because this is a fantasy world, it doesn't mean it's not derivative of the real world. All of these fantasy uh, elements are, are metaphors for real life states of mind or interactions. And that's why it's very valid that the types of interactions that take place in this fantasy world actually psychologically are, are, are very tied to real world interactions. You're just moving in a in a metaphorical realm, much like when you're dreaming, you're processing genuine emotions and genuine thoughts that you're you're trying to work through and your mind creates a system of metaphors that represent those those emotions in order for you to put them to play and work work through them work through them in your sleeping state so even if these characters and races are not the characters and races that we're familiar with they the, the dynamics between them definitely map to the real world and there's a lot of value there to explore those tensions and to explore those relationships and to to have people think about how they relate to the tensions that exist between races in in reality. Yeah, when when I talked to Adam and Adam from Game to Grow, that's what they said was you know in their therapeutic sessions with games that that's what's valuable about Dungeons and Dragons is that it's it's definitely not real, but it's also definitely real. It's both simultaneously, and that's what makes it valuable to them in that they can they can move between real issues that the players themselves are having and the characters are having and they can move in and out. So it's a safe place to, to deal with problems and conflicts and tensions because it's both rooted in reality and entirely fantasy at the same time. And it gives you, gives you a flexibility to work with that. And, and like you said, that is how, it's similar to how we process things and, you know, metaphors and analogies and stories and myths. 
but in a role-playing game that can be you know mixed up and and remixed in the moment for how we are dealing with those and how we're thinking about them. Absolutely. And one of the great benefits is that that it's exactly what they're saying, how it, how it incorporates both, is that those metaphors create safe distance from the issues and emotions at play. You, you're more likely to be able to talk about a difficult situation involving a character in a fantastical realm because it gives you sufficient distance from your own life, from your lived reality, to use those as points, as, as artifacts for uh, discussing these dynamics, which are clearly related to your real life. Whereas um, young people might be more reluctant to address these issues in the context of their reality because it's more they, they make themselves more vulnerable. Um, so that's that's the really powerful is that the system of metaphors, this this distancing from reality, but still maintaining the the dynamics and and structures that that we recognize as real is is really valuable to getting young people to open up and discuss and think and 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 reflect on their own lived reality in a really meaningful and productive way. Absolutely, yeah. Well, this this has been really fascinating, and I think that <laughs> we've covered a lot of really uh, heavy and interesting topics. So. So as we wrap up, how can listeners find out more about your work and, and your writings and follow you on social media? So I'm on Twitter at Paul Dervazi on Twitter, just my name at, uh, and I post a lot of the work that I do there. If you Google search my name, you'll find lots of articles and experiences that I've written about, and they can go to my blog, which is uh, ludiclearning.org, where I also share some of the experiences I've had some sort of distributed through, through multiple channels, depending on what it is that I'm working on. And thank you, Chess. I love being on your show. I love your show. I always feel that, that an hour is never enough. We have so many things to talk about. And I thank you for having me today. Thanks to Paul for returning to the show a second time. He is a great example of how using games in a classroom isn't just about getting kids to get better grades, but about how games can be a conduit for learning about and connecting with the gaming generation and tackling societal problems at the same time. That's it for this week's Intelligence Boost. If you liked this episode, you're really going to enjoy the next one. This week we talked a lot about the influence of D&D and about its potential as an educational tool. Next week we are going to be looking at some practical examples of using Dungeons and Dragons in a classroom. That's because I'll be talking with the founders of Teaching with D&D. Subscribe so you don't miss that episode or any of our other episodes upcoming about games and education. And you're always welcome in our community discord at discord.gg slash plus seven. It's a really great community. Recently, some folks there were helping me with some advice on buying a computer since I'm desperately in need of a new machine. So I got to give a shout out to uh, the folks offering to help me with that. And on Twitter, you can find the show at 7 underscore intelligence. Thanks for listening. I'll see you in seven. The Podglomerate. 
a sonic universe.